All right, and welcome back. Tonight our guest is Scott Eisman. Scott, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself then? Sure. I'm uh, an attorney at O'Connell and Aronowitz in Albany. I'm a partner there, and I've been in private practice for six years. My practice is primarily in criminal defense. Uh, before that, I was a prosecutor for the Marine Corps. I was a judge advocate, and I did that for four years. Um, born and raised in the capital region, and I'm, I'm happy to be here with you. All right, well, it's certainly nice to have you with us. So tonight we're here to talk about the 11th Amendment of the Constitution and exactly what it is and what it does. So for our audience, can you just fill us in a little bit on it? Sure. So the 11th Amendment is uh, one of the obscure but important amendments. It's not recently been litigated to any certain extent. Um, it's not like the First Amendment that gets cited a lot. Yeah. Uh, people don't know it off the top of their heads. And, and frankly, I didn't know really much about it until I went to law school. Um, but effectively, the 11th Amendment sent, set limits on the jurisdiction of the federal courts to hear certain cases. And primarily, uh, what it did was is it limited the ability of individual citizens to sue other states in federal court or to bring states uh, to court. Yeah. And uh, this has to get into the basic concept of what's called sovereign immunity. I mean, in our system, in our federal system, we have dual sovereignty among the states and among the federal and with the federal government. And so the federal government is a sovereign governmental entity and the states are sovereign as well. Yeah. And so there's an idea with sovereign immunity that the government cannot be sued unless it gives permission to be. And the 11th Amendment uh, came after the Bill of Rights was passed and there was a case called Chisholm v. Georgia. Okay. In which uh, an individual in um, uh, in the South was trying to sue the state of Georgia for debts that he was owed during the Revolutionary War. And uh, Georgia refused to even participate in it because they said, we're a state and we can't be sued. Uh, but the Supreme Court said, oh, yes, you can under the Constitution. Since this individual is not a citizen of the state of Georgia, he can sue you, the state of Georgia, in federal court and use that as a way to remedy the grievances. And went all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court upheld the, the standing to bring the lawsuit. And uh, quickly thereafter, the states got afraid of this. And yeah. within a year, they passed the 11th Amendment, which precluded an individual from suing uh, uh, the state in federal court. And so it limited the federal jurisdiction of, of the courts. And it's been litigated a bit since. But that's the uh, to, to, to establish the right and left lateral limits of what the, the amendment actually says. But that's the basic background is to, to limit the ability of individuals to sue states and federal courts. So it kind of seems like a self-protection thing then by the states. Oh, totally. And, and it, it all gets back to this idea of we're the government. You can't sue us unless you let us, and that, which gets into <laughs> another case called Ex parte Young down the line. But the, and that, this gets back to common law. You know, when, when we yeah. came from a monarchical system and the monarchy said, you can't do anything to us. We're the monarchy. We're, di we're divine. And the, the idea is that the government can't be challenged unless it allows itself to be challenged. It's sovereign immunity. It's immune from any type of action or being held responsible for its conduct unless it allows itself to be. And thankfully, we live in a democracy where the people yeah. get to say, well, hold on a second. The government shouldn't be completely immune from everything that it does because what if it, what if it hurts us? We should be able to recover from the government in instances when we are hurt. And so... We, we have carved out a number of exceptions to the sovereign immunity principle, but there's no question about it. The 11th Amendment was designed to limit the liability of states, to make sure that the states could not be sued in federal courts, 
and that and to limit the individual's right to bring causes of action against the states. So, I mean, you say like they have a choice of whether or not to be sued. Would that mean like they could look at one case and say, we don't want to do this. We don't want to be sued on this case. But then they could look at another case and be like, yeah, well, we're open to this case. Not really, no. I don't oh, okay. think that, that would be how it would apply. It's basically saying that um, the way it's saying it is we, the government, cannot be sued writ large unless these types of circumstances apply on a case-by-case basis. I guess if you were, if you had your own kingdom, Justin, you, know, <laughs> you, you could establish and say, you know what, I'm going to allow Jane Doe to sue me today, but, but Paul Smith tomorrow, you can't, even though it's the same cause of action. Yeah. The idea is on certain types of cases, the government will say generally, you know what, we're going to allow people to bring their claims to us and to, to hear those grievances and allow them to potentially recover against us as the government. Uh, but there isn't an arbitrary selection, and that at least not in our system. Again, if yeah. you were a dictator, you could establish whatever you wanted to because yeah. you're sovereign and you have you have control. Yeah, it's. I mean, our president, for instance, doesn't have divine sovereignty like the kings of like England used to, or whatever. Well, don't tell him that. But but yeah, say so he he. <laughs> no, he does not. He doesn't have. There's no divine right of presidency. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's you know he's he's elected. Not yeah. And I guess it's kind of like, like you said, we come from the monarchical uh, system in England, but we try to get as far away from that as we can with our system. Although we, although our law is still based off common law, which is England's system. Yeah, it, well, it's a, it's an ancestor of it, and so it brings yeah. with it a lot of the original trappings of common law. And in, in law school, you know, you you learn, you read a lot of cases from English common law that hmm. that were came over to the the states and were part of the common law here. New York is a very old state, and yeah. it, not only it's one of the originals, but it is also a very old colony, one of the original colonies. Yeah. So its common law goes back a long way. Now, you said earlier that this kind of amendment is very obscure. Now, do you think it's obscure just because like it's just never used, or do you think people just don't want to study it? It never comes up in politics? Because like, we had Professor Randy Barnett on from Georgetown Law, and he has a book called, it's either 100 or 150 constitutional law cases that everybody should know. I can't remember if it's 150 or 100. And he said it was originally like 153 or 103, but they took the three off to be, kind of make it a round number. And I asked him like, out of curiosity, what were those cases that you took off? And he goes, oh, they were just some 11th Amendment cases. So I mean, like, they don't even seem to be like worth scholarly looking for Professor Barnett. It's like, do you have any idea of like why that is? Yeah, I, well, I have a couple of theories about it, and so yeah. I think one's. I think the the best answer to give you is it's a practical reason. Yeah, is that uh, so? There's this decision ex parte young, which was in the early 1900s. I, I can't remember the exact date, 1907 or so. Yeah, where the court basically said a state can be sued if they give consent to be sued, and so if a, if they pass legislation saying, you know what, we're going to create a private right of action for a citizen to be able to sue us under these circumstances, and that could be sued in federal court or state court. They can give consent to do it. And the federal government can do the same thing. And, uh, and since we're in a democracy, we have a number of ways for citizens to sue states. And so through legislation, they, they, the states have consented through the legislative process to allow themselves to be sued. When you hear about a civil rights action being yeah. brought, um, there, not only could you bring that action in New York State, you could also bring that action, uh, like in a New York State court, if... Uh, a, if a member of the state of New York violated your civil rights, other, whether under federal law or state law, you could also bring that action in federal court and sue the state of New York in federal court. 
Now, there's some other reasons for why that is, but in effect, what we have done is, through legislation, created mechanisms for citizens to, to seek their grievances in the courts through the consent process. And so, yeah. and so the, the amendment hasn't been abrogated in its entirety, but enough of the big issues where citizens are going to want to sue the state uh, or to sue other states have been addressed through legislation, allowing for them to pursue those grievances in the courts. Um, the other, the other thing is, is that the, uh, there's a couple of, of cases w- that, uh, the Supreme court decided, which allowed for mechanisms by, for citizens to sue, uh, uh, the States, um, following the 14th amendment, there's a couple of different clauses of the 14th amendment, which, uh, ones being the equal protection clause, uh, which basically says that all of the federal rights that you have under the constitution the state can't interfere with those. And if you if the state interferes with those, that's a violation of federal law. And through the enforcement clause, which of the 14th Amendment allows for the states, uh, I'm sorry, allows for the legislature to enact legislation to enforce the 14th Amendment, they can create mechanisms by which the um, by which citizens can sue states for violation of federal law. Oh, okay. And so through a combination of both legislation as well as other constitutional amendments there's been a host of ways in which people can seek their grievances against the states to largely get around their needing to be any further litigation over this issue and that's in my you know I'm no constitutional scholar but that's <laughs> my assessment of of why you don't see more action around this yeah i mean it's kind of just something that you only really would hear about if you actually like sought it out i guess and i mean like you said like you could bring a case against new york state if like a authority figure or like some official did something that was like against your civil rights would you be able to do that if you were like let's say a resident of new york but then the civil rights violation happened in let's say georgia yes yeah oh, okay you, you could and and so it, it, civil rights is a little different too because okay. the, the federal government through legislation and the, the supreme court has said that uh that the states can't interfere with your civil rights. And that's the whole idea of the 14th Amendment, and uh, largely. I mean, that was how the states became, you know, after after the Civil War, that's how we were able to enforce yeah. voting rights and other civil liberties and enfranchisement for, for the, for the uh, emancipated slaves was through the Equal Protection Clause. And then that's what was used for Brown v. Board of Education and all sorts of other uh, civil rights um, legislation. And so... But to answer your questions, yes, a, a citizen in the state of New York could sue the state of Georgia if Georgia deprived them of their of their civil rights. Okay. Yeah, because I so it kind of seems to me that civil rights falls in a different bucket than everything else with this amendment. It it, it doesn't it doesn't so it's it, you know so you have the, the basic concept that the state is immune it would still apply. Yeah. Uh, but it's been abrogated by legislation and and so that. The, there has been consent given. Um, I'm sure I'm not licensed in Georgia, but I know that under, for example, someone from Georgia who came to New York State, if New York State police arrested them without a warrant or without probable cause, they would have a cognizable claim that their due process rights or that their right against unlawful search and seizure were violated. And in theory, they could bring a claim under New York State law or under federal law against the state of New York if the state of New York was the, the bad actor in that case. Yeah. And so... And that's done through legislation, uh, both state legislation and federal legislation. Okay. And what are some other, like, 
big cases or impactful cases on this law? Well, there aren't many. This is this is not yeah. the, the the sexiest constitutional <laughs> topic in the world. Uh, so you have um, uh, some of the concepts that I just talked about are encapsulated in Fitzpatrick v. Baker and also the Seminole Tribe decision. And what these two cases are is you have you have the fact that the states can be subject to suit through the Fourteenth Amendment, which is what I just talked about, and that's the Fitzpatrick v. Baker um, saying that. Yeah that the enforcement clause of and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment allows the states to be sued yeah. if they're violating certain rights. Yeah. Okay? So we could, a, a state could be dragged into federal court and sued for, for federal violations. The other idea in the Seminole Tribe is that, and this is just a, this is a constitutional distinction as to where the authority for legislation comes from. And so under the Constitution, the legislature is Article I. Right, that's where the powers of the legislature are, are articulated. The Fourteenth Amendment, I think it's the fifth clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, has a separate enforcement provision that allows the, the Congress to pass legislation to enforce the provisions of the Fourteenth Amendment writ large. But that's it under under that guise. And so you have the Seminole Tribe decision, which was in 1996, and that says that Congress cannot subject the states to suit when it's legislating under its Article One powers, meaning that. Because Article One predated the uh, the Eleventh Amendment, and if they're just passing legislation under such something like um, the, the Commerce Clause, which allows them yeah. to pass legislation to regulate uh, interstate commerce, then they they cannot through that abrogate a state's sovereign immunity and subject them to suit. But if they were to do it under the Fourteenth Amendment Enforcement Clause, they could. And so, you know, uh, besides you had you know the Chisholm v. Georgia case. Um, if you go back, uh, which was abrogated by the, the amendment itself and gave cause yeah. for their rise, you had Cohen v. Virginia, which was you had these couple of guys, I think they were being criminally prosecuted for some sort of lottery crime. Hmm. And, uh, hmm. and they were trying to challenge in federal court their, their appeal, or their conviction. And the, and the Supreme Court early on, this is in the early 1800s, they said, hey, you know what? You can't, um, because you're not of a, a different state, because you're from Virginia and you're suing us and you're suing Virginia in federal court, it doesn't apply to you because you're of the same state and the language didn't preclude that. You had to be of, of a different state or of a foreign state. And then in, uh, in Hansville, Louisiana, uh, and this is again still in the 1800s, the, uh, they, the Supreme Court basically changed course and said that there's no suits against the state. They're just saying that the 11th Amendment is a is a pretty strong uh, protection. Which court was that again? Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, like the I mean the like um, Chief Justice, like now it'd be like the Roberts course. Oh, um, trying to think of like I don't know. Uh, so hmm. I'd, I'd have to look up the the date of the decision. And I okay, don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, because I know sometimes whichever certain cases or like the directions of certain ones can be defined by like how the court is structured under that Chief Justice. Like right now with the Roberts court, you have some interesting decisions. Like everybody was shocked with him in Obamacare, for instance, but. Yeah, that was just a curiosity thing for me. But <laughs> yeah, and you certainly do. I mean, it's a political process. Right? Yeah, and so you're going to get decisions which are political. I mean, I think the uh, the Hans v. Louisiana was decided in a time that was post civil. I believe it was post civil war. Even if it wasn't, you had tremendous conflict between the states. Yeah, and you had this strong states' rights contingent of wanting to protect the institutions that are within the, within the states, and nothing. And this, the Eleventh Amendment, certainly 
uh, uh, helps protect states' rights and their ability to, to govern their population and not be subject to suit and to be challenged. And so you have to look at the political moment uh, that things are decided in. Yeah. So what I'm getting a lot from this is that, excuse me, is that a lot of what happens with the 11th Amendment, like these big cases in this, don't have actually much to do with the 11th Amendment. Have to do much with like a little bit with like the 14th or like these civil rights amendments that came up after the Civil War. Well, it's the 11th Amendment is being applied to modern day circumstances. And I use modern to mean the time in which the dispute arose. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, there's no question that the 14th Amendment was the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments came right after the Civil War. These are the Reconstruction Amendments. And that was a very different time than yeah. the 1790s when, when the 11th Amendment was actually passed. And so it's you're applying what happened, what was written in 1790 to what's going on in the 1860s or the 1880s or the early 1900s under with new laws that may impact the 11th Amendment. Yeah. And so you, you get this uh, reconstruction, if you will, of what the 11th Amendment means in light of what that new congressional amendment or that new constitutional amendment says. And there's new times. I mean, you have... Uh, a, a totally different world in the late 1880s as you do it, did in the 1790s. And, oh, for sure. And in the 1990s when they're deciding the Seminole Tribe decision as opposed to, to the 1790s, right? You couldn't think of two vastly more different worlds than the worlds of when Saved by the Bell is on TV and, and then when they're, uh, they still had outhouses and no running water and, <laughs> and they're running with, uh, with feathers, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, the times change and the times dramatically impact the decisions that come out. Because remember, all the justices are appointed by the president, but they're approved by the Senate. Yeah, and it's a political process, and we see that it's be become heightenedly political um, in recent times. Um, but it's those uh, political influences are definitely going to trickle into the decisions that the justices make. Yeah, now it's very political, especially since the days of Robert Bork, or some will even argue before that, but Bork was really the first one that made it really political. <laughs> Well, I mean, I would argue that it's always been political. I mean, you yeah. can go back to um, uh, to midnight appointments um, back the midnight you know, judges it, with exactly. Adams, and it. Listen, we're America's a political hot mess, and it always has been. <laughs> and uh, that's one of the great things about it is that we're we're still ticking along, um, and that it has a, there's flexibility in the system to be able to deal with those political changes, um, but. There, there really isn't, I don't think, any pristine time of intellectual honesty um, on the court. It has always been a reflection of, of the political times. And it may not be a, it may be a distorted reflection. And there may be instances when there's uh, intel pure intellectual honesty. These people are appointed there for a reason. And, uh, and that's a political reason by the president. And then whether they're confirmed or not is confirmed on political reasons. Uh, make no mistake about it. The Supreme Court is a very political body. Yeah. Is there, um, with the 11th Amendment, what do you think is like the most common misconception about it for those who actually take a look at it themselves? Oh, well, since it's not, I mean, if I would say the normal Joe Blow in the street wouldn't even know what the 11th Amendment is. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think that the most common misconception is that uh, is that states can't be sued. If you were to read yeah. the plain language of the of the amendment itself, I mean, it would say that uh, someone from outside of New York uh, couldn't sue New York in, in federal court. And, but that's not, I wouldn't say that that is true, but 
I think that that truth has been built upon by the other changes in the law that have taken place since the amendment. And so I, I think it is largely been resigned to obscurity because it's been, you know, the legs of it have been cut out from under it in, in many yeah. respects. Okay. Yeah, because I know if you try doing a poll of somebody, of a bunch of people on the street, probably not even nine out of 10 or like nine out of 10 or even 10 out of 10 might not even know what it is. Yeah. I mean, I, listen, if you had given me a pop quiz before I went to law school and what the 11th amendment was, I couldn't have told you what it was after law school and studying for the bar. I probably could have told you. <laughs> uh, and then like when I was telling my wife that I was coming on the show, she said, well, what's the 11th amendment? And, uh, <laughs> so that's a great question. I know it has something to do with the immunity of the States from lawsuits, but I can't tell you exactly you know, what it is. And, uh, and so I had to refresh my memory, and it was a lot of fun reading through, because I'm pretty nerdy, you know, it was a lot of fun reading through these old cases I hadn't read since law school on it. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, like you said earlier in the show, it's not like the Second Amendment or the First Amendment. Like, Alan Lickman has a book that he just came out with called The Case Against the Second Amendment, Why We Should Abolish the Second Amendment. Nobody's going to come out with a book called Why We Should Abolish the Eleventh Amendment. Yeah, and I, I think largely it's... Uh, and there's amendments like that. There's amendments you don't hear about. You know, what is, yeah. You know, what's the, the 10th Amendment say, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I, mean, I can tell you off the top of my head right now, although we did an episode on it, but it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, it's a reservation of rights to the states that aren't articulated in the Constitution, right? And so it's... Yeah. Uh, but that's been disputed. It's been... But it really doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot because the legislation that, that has been passed since then and the times haven't had to apply it in any meaningful way. And I, I you know, I think here it's... The most important thing to remember about the 11th Amendment, if, it, if it's going to be remembered for anything, is it has to do with the idea that the government is sovereign yeah, and that the government will always invoke its sovereignty when it's not in its interest and when it, when it is in its interest to do so. And, uh, and, and it will fight against being held responsible for things unless the people, God, we're a democracy, say that it must be. And so it, I think it's a great thing, actually, that that the 11th Amendment is not known very well yeah. because it, that means that we have been able to find ways to solve grievances in and around it, that the government has said, you know what, we're going to allow ourselves to be sued. Now, for example, I mean, this might be something that your um, students at Siena be interested in is, you know, Title IX. Uh, yeah. Right? And so we actually we, did a whole entire episode on it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a hot-button issue on college campuses. But federal funding you know, creates a private, you know, Title IX creates a private right of action for, um, uh, for individuals to sue those that violate uh, Title IX in federal court. And so if SUNY Albany violates a student's rights that are articulated in that legislation, SUNY Albany can be sued, and SUNY Albany is the state. You know, it, there's separate entities that are set up under it, but it's, it, you know, it's a state. The state school, it's yeah. It's a state school. And, uh, and actually heightened protections are given to SUNY students as opposed to Siena students. Really? We could do a whole other episode on that. Really? Yeah, because it's a state institution. And huh. But what I'm saying is, is that because the legislation itself built in a private right of action, now people have a way to address their grievances, and the government is saying, you know what, we're going to allow people to be sued, and if the SUNY wants to accept that funding, they're going to have to live up to these uh, expectations that we're setting, to receive federal money and open themselves up to criticism if they don't do what they say they should do. And so I think it's a great thing that 
that we have built-in processes that allow for these grievances to be aired. You can you can debate until the cows come home about whether those processes are, are efficient or effective or the best ones that are in place. But the important yeah. thing is we have mechanisms to resolve those grievances that allow us to uh, to challenge the government. Yeah, because I mean, like when I did that episode with Christina Hoff Summers, I don't know if you're familiar with her. I'm not, no. She's known as the factual feminist. She's a former college professor, and now she's she was a second wave feminist. Now she's kind of critical of third wave feminism, but she has a lot of experiences with colleges and everything. So we talked to her about um, Title IX, which is actually up on our podcast right now. But if anybody else wants to take a look at that, but yeah, that never came to mind for me that like students at like a state school would have more protections under Title IX than a student like me at Siena College. Well, it's not under Title IX. It's actually under. Oh, okay. It's under constitutional due process rights. Huh. So there's higher huh. there's higher protections on for state students or students attending state institutions because, for example, if the if SUNY Albany were to take disciplinary action against a student, uh, that's the state taking action against the student. Whereas if Siena College were, that's a private actor taking yeah. an action, and so it's it's a different analysis, and so it, there's a there are different rights that apply in those situations. Hmm. Yeah, no, I never would have thought of it that way. Well, you, uh, you'd be surprised uh, when you dig into the uh, into the <laughs> cases that apply. You know, all these little uh, things that may not seem to make sense, right? I mean, yeah, I'm a 20 year old student going to Siena, or I'm a 20 year old student going to SUNY Albany. And you're telling me that I have different rights depending on what school I go to, right? Yeah, I mean. That, that's some of the, the fun and confounding parts of the law. <laughs> I don't think any college student actually thinks about that when they're looking at schools. No, they, they certainly don't. Yeah, <laughs> Not, nobody No 18-year-old is thinking that way. No 18-year-old unless their dad's a lawyer or something like that or their mom's a lawyer is going like, should I go to SUNY Albany so I get more constitutional protections there? <laughs> like, yeah, they're not usually doing that type of analysis because no one thinks that they're going to need them, right? Yeah. And so it's uh, no one thinks that way. As to uh, and honestly, I'm, I'm glad people don't think that way because it's a pretty jaded view to make decisions on. And honestly, pretty they're, pessimistic they're, view. <laughs> exactly, and it, they're marginal. They're not. It's not a uh, an enormous uh, distinction, but they're the, the law treats them differently. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you also said earlier in the show that you used to be a Marine Corps lawyer. Yep. So could you tell us a little bit about like what that experience was like? Because we've been trying to get somebody to talk a little bit about how like the military system is different from like the actual like civilian system. You mean from a legal process? Yeah. Well, quick overview then. So you have what's called the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which is UCMJ. The, the UCMJ, um, which is the criminal and procedural code. It would be akin to the federal rules of criminal procedure and um, and the uh, in like Title 18 of the of the federal code, which lists out the majority of the crimes that are federal, yeah. or the New York Penal Law and the New York Criminal uh, Procedural Law. And that's the equivalent, um, and uh, it's very similar procedurally and substantively to any state in the country. I'd say it's you know 90 95 percent similar, but there are military specific offenses like falling asleep on post, you know, yeah. away without leave uh, or unauthorized absence. AWOL. Um, it, yes, away without leave is AWOL. Yeah. It's articulated in the UCMJ as um, unauthorized absence. Uh, and then there's some, there's, uh, you know, there's treason offenses, there's espionage offenses, there's things that are a little bit different that you wouldn't ordinarily see in civil life. Yeah. Um, and then, but probably the, the most fundamental distinction is uh, that, the, a jury is all military. It's all military members. It's not a civilian jury. 
The prosecution and defense are all military, although you can have civilian defense if that's what you want to. But uh, military defense is provided to you. There's a military judge. They're not civilians. And uh, the jury actually determines sentencing, which is very rare. And I'm not aware of any jurisdictions in our country besides that that provide for the jury doing sentencing. And, uh, you know, and it's a, a way of, you know, peer accountability, um, which the military is big on. Um, but to get back to your original question, what my job and my experience was, is I was uh, what's called a trial counsel, which is effectively a, a prosecutor. Yeah. And I would uh, take cases to court-martial. Um, I would investigate criminal, uh, criminal activity or allegations of criminal activity. We'd work with um, our law enforcement arm was NCIS, the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, popularized by the TV show. <laughs> yep. and, uh, the multiple TV shows. Uh, the multiple TV shows. Um, and I can say we don't, we did not do as cool stuff as they do on the TV shows. Um, yeah, or they have like Mark Hammond or LL Cool J. <laughs> yeah, so but we, had, we had some very capable, good agents. Um, uh, but obviously it, 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 it was not like A Few Good Men, the Tom Cruise movie, and it was not uh, like NCIS. But it was, you know, you have a large population of people. And on my air station, you know, we had 20,000 people that were on the base. And in any population like that, there's going to be some sort of criminal activity that will take place from time to time. And everything from homicides to, you know, uh, property crimes to drug crimes. Um, wow. <laughs> and so we would investigate it and we would prosecute it and bring it to court martial. And the other part of what we would do is we would uh, advise commanders on what to do in cases because uh, in the military system, and this is also unique, the commander of a unit um, will have what's called, uh, they are called a convening authority, meaning that they're the ones who actually create a court-martial. So when you hear a general court-martial, that can only be created by a general officer or in certain circumstances, other officers uh, have the designated authority. But a general of a certain rank has to be able to say, I'm creating a court-martial. And then he, create, he or she creates a general court-martial. And then you have uh, you know, special court-martials, which is what handles like misdemeanor-type offenses, less than a year of uh, brig time um, or prison time. And those can be done by uh, colonels or lieutenant colonels usually, and, or a general if they wanted to convene a special court-martial. But you have the commanders of a unit who are the ones deciding whether to send a case to a court-martial. And so as the military attorney, I would go to the, the CO of a certain Marine aircraft group and I'd say, sir, you know, here's what's going on. Here's the investigation. This is what I think we should do. And he or she would make the determination on whether to send the case to a court martial. They're kind of acting like a, like a district attorney in a way who has prosecutorial discretion. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause we've never, we've been trying to get somebody on to talk about, but we never had it. I mean, like if you're open to answering this question, what was kind of like the most the craziest thing you ever had to deal with in that system? Craziest thing I ever had to deal with in that system? Well, Marines are crazy. So, uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm an army. I'm, I'm an army brat myself. So I spent two years in ROTC. So I mean, I army's a little crazy too. But I guess the Marines have their own special brand of craziness. No, I mean, I you know, I I love the Marine crazy, and that's why I I joined the Marines. Um, no, in all seriousness, I mean, it was um, the craziest thing had to do with. Uh, investigating issues with uh, service members returning from overseas. And so it wasn't crazy in the sense of wild and, um, and zany facts. It was yeah. more of, holy cow, we have this person who has gone through this ama 
amazing service, and then they've done this thing that's completely contradictory to what you would expect. Yeah. And so it was it was eye opening in that res- in that regard. Um, it was and it was challenging in that regard. The, the other thing during my time in, I I started on active duty in t- 2010, and that's when sexual assault became a an, an hot a, button a, issue. Hot button issue for the military. Um, there was a documentary called the, I believe it was called the Silent War. Something like that, which yeah. Which had to do with sexual assault being basically ignored in the military. And so we, that was very aggressively pursued and appropriately pursued in many respects. Um, and so that was a very chaotic and dynamic environment dealing with those investigations, uh, dealing with those prosecutions, and in a very challenging environment because when I was in, I think uh, there were, were less than less than 10% of the Marine Marine Corps consisted of females. Yeah. You know, it's 90, I think it was 93 or 94 percent male dominated environment. And uh, you had a lot of, uh, you had same sex, you know, sex assault happening too. Um, and so that was, that had brought in the confluence of a number of issues. You had very emotional and psychologically affecting facts with people's lives really being upended. You had very serious allegations. And then you had the politics of the whole thing. Yeah. And people wanting to make sure. Commanders wanting to make sure that they were doing the right thing, but also that they were, uh, you know, politically doing the right thing because uh, with politicians. And so it was, you had congressional inquiries all the time into whether you were properly investigating or prosecuting a case, yeah, um, or responding to it, whether there were appropriate resources. And uh, it, it pro, there's pros and cons to that that whole process. But that was that was an interesting experience to be a part of at that time. Yeah. So we're almost out of time. I hate to leave it on such a downer note, but um, one last question is what is kind of like one piece of literature or one kind of like interesting case from law history? You can do one of each if you want that you think everybody should take a look at in your worldview. One per, one piece of literature and then one like case. Um so there was Justice Jackson is my favorite Supreme Court justice, and I can't recall the case name off the top of my head. It was the um, believe it had, it had to do with the decision on the internment camps with the the Japanese uh, following World War II, and uh, to me that was a really powerfully and beautifully written opinion um, that I think spoke to every type of motive that people could have for this awful and other people would say you know necessary uh, decision that the government made and uh, it I thought it did a just a masterful job of, of, of yeah. melding the law and emotion and politics and in, in its ultimate decision and you can disagree with what the, uh, the ultimate decision was which was upholding the legitimacy of the internment camps uh, but it I I think that as a piece of legal writing, that's one of my favorite um, my favorite things. Um, in terms of uh, a, a piece of literature, um, you know, there's. I'm not an Atticus Finch fan too much because he lost, uh, <laughs> even though it's a beautifully written book. Like Kill Mockingbird. Uh, yeah, uh, it, I there's there's a book out there if people want to learn about how to think and write like an attorney. And it's, um, it's called plain, Eng- plain English for Lawyers. And I have it on my desk. I give it to every intern that comes in and every clerk that comes in. 
I say, just read this and it'll help you just write and think more clearly. And it's just, it's like a hundred pages and it's, uh, you know, it's uh, just a little manual on how to clearly and concisely articulate a point. And whether you're going to be a lawyer or not, it's a very effective skill. And so that's not really literature, uh, but it's a uh, it's a great piece of, it's a great tool for the toolbox. I'll put it that yeah. Way. All right. Well, Scott, thank you for being with us. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Justin. I enjoyed it. And there you go, listeners. Thank you, Scott Eisman, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Justin, for that wonderful interview. And